Kevin Jackson. You hold the Gross Family Chair in Business and you're a Professor of Business Ethics and Law in Fordham University in New York, the Jesuit-run university. But you're here at the conferences this weekend in Waterford on spirituality and the professions and you're given the wonderful talk, the intriguing title, Music as a Profession of the Contemplative Journey castles, bridges and butterflies. So let's start off with how is music as a profession, how does it relate to the contemplative journey? You are a musician yourself as well. Indeed, I am composer and a jazz pianist, improviser. I conceived of this title to have a kind of a double entendre. So the idea of music as a profession means in the obvious sense of uh, it's, a, it's a vocation of professional artists. But I also intended in this title to convey profession in the religious sense as an expression of something dealing with faith and dealing with spirituality. Uh, and the three themes of bridges, butterflies and castles. And these three themes are related to, first of all, Bridges is uh, related to Franz Liszt, the great Hungarian composer and pianist, who in his writings on music thought of music as a sacramental bridge. He called it a sacramental bridge and also a kind of an aural sacrament so that it would link the world we live in, the, the sensual world, with a deeper spiritual world. Now, what's interesting about Liszt is he, he developed a kind of a reputation, especially in his early life, as being this kind of great showman and even a, a kind of a womanizer, you know. But what most people don't realize is Liszt was extremely religious throughout his whole life. Indeed, at age 53, he took holy orders. And in the talk, I showcase a certain composition of his benediction to God in solitude, which is a piece that evokes this kind of uh, serenity and peacefulness and so on. So I take from this metaphor of a bridge the notion that we're involved in a kind of a journey in music, that music helps us along a journey, and where that journey takes us, I turn then to the second image, which is from St. Teresa of Avila. In her books, uh, she had one book entitled castles or the mansions, in which case she's talking about a journey into the very center of one's soul. And she fancies that there are seven mansions that we traverse through. We initiate this through prayer and contemplation. So I go in my talk to depict the first mansion, which is, she says, in a castle that is, she imagines it being constructed of a diamond or of something like pure crystal. So it has light penetrating through it, but that light is sometimes obscured. In the first mansion, she says, we confront venomous reptiles. And uh, this just evokes all kinds of interesting questions to me. You know, is she talking about sins? Is she talking about our own personal demons? You know, is she talking about the kinds of things that Eastern contemplatives highlighted that interfere with our ascension to the divine? Things like the mind is like an uncaged, crazy monkey. (laughs) And so... 
that stimulated my thinking about how maybe music is serving the same sort of a purpose of transportation away from this world into another world. One thinks about all these different philosophers that have talked about music. St. Augustine talking about music and similarly poetry as being capable of reordering time, pointing us beyond time and space into some other dimension. Okay, the third metaphor that I have in this talk is that of butterflies. And this comes from an author that I came across just a couple of years ago named Eben Alexander, who's a medical doctor. He's actually a neurosurgeon who was suddenly taken by a very strange illness for an adult. It was a kind of an infection, a meningitis, which engulfed his whole brain in an infection. Eventually, after excruciating pain, he went into a coma for a week. When he finally emerged from a coma, and he had the medical records, which showed that his entire cerebral cortex, his entire functional brain, was shut down during this time. And yet, he had the most vivid experiences. His son encouraged him, you have to write all this down. Don't even think about what it, it was that you were experiencing, but just write it all down. So... The result of this has been three different books, one called Proof of Heaven, the second is called Map of Heaven, the third one is called Living in a Mindful Universe, in which he systematically describes what it was that his consciousness was in. And this takes him into some very, very erudite philosophical questions, scientific questions, and so on. He himself was not a particularly religious person, but he says this experience totally transformed him. To me, he's talking about all these same things that Liszt and St. Teresa were talking about, that somehow he had a consciousness that went beyond space and time. He talks indeed about the presence of a kind of what he calls a spinning song, a very profound kind of music which he says he can't even describe, this kind of an ineffability about it. And he says that there was this kind of spinning song that reminds him of like a gigantic pipe organ that you would experience in church. He talks about confronting beings who were, you know, sort of like angels and a kind of an orb, which is, he said, a kind of a source of wisdom that basically was able to impart knowledge to him, although he can't express it all. He says it has something to do with three primary points. The first one being you are deeply loved forever, that you have nothing to fear, and you can do nothing wrong. Like Julian of Norwich. <laughs> yeah. And his own view, by the way, just to make this a little more scientifically rigorous, is he said that the way to understand this proposition might be to think of consciousness as radio waves, so that just as radio waves are everywhere around us, unless you have a receiver turned on and functional, these waves are not going to be visible, they're just floating out there. And perhaps our consciousness is like that, and our brain functions as a kind of a conduit through which these waves become understandable to us. But then if you turn off the radio, it doesn't mean that the consciousness or the radio waves cease to exist. They just are in a, in a different domain. That's his explanation for it, and I find it very, very intriguing. And music ties into that as well, doesn't it? Because, well, you tell me because you're doing the talk, but I can see the parallels. Well, the tie-in with music especially comes out in um, his later books, Towards the End, 
where he starts talking about his he's he now yearns to return to this reality that he was in he says he doesn't despise our ordinary life it rather he says it takes on a, a deeper meaning altogether but he sees it in a different framework but in his quest to sort of return to this space i mean you don't want to go back into a coma <laughs> But he started to experiment and, and discuss with um, people that are into things like, uh, it's called binaural beats. Binaural beats is where you put on a set of headphones and it's giving you frequencies at slightly different levels of frequency. And the result of this from a neurological perspective is to elevate your brain waves to a higher level, which is, by the way, what is going on when Buddhist monks do sustained meditation. And so this is his quest now, is to try to use sound as a vehicle for returning to an alternative dimension or an alternative framework that is beyond space and time. And music is, as we know, redolent with sound and different kinds of sounds. For you as a musician yourself, and I mean, you're in the hard world of business and, and lecturing in business, and that, you know, you're a jazz musician, a pianist, does it speak to you in that way of your own spirituality and maybe tuning in at those different levels? It does, indeed. I have to say, the whole idea of this conference was a kind of an illumination for me, because when I first thought about, what do I have to say about professions and spirituality, and then it suddenly hit me that if I dwell on music as a type of profession, then many answers are starting to flow out, so that music is a kind of a humanities, but it also has a hard-nosed business aspect to it. And one of the things that I talk about in the, the last segment of my talk is how we might want to break down certain barriers. In other words, I think there's certain prejudices that exist amongst philosophers of music who would be ready to admit some of the things that I'm pointing out, that classical music has a certain potentiality for connecting us with a certain spiritual or uh, religious dimension in life that somebody like Beethoven who is composing uh, a symphony in entire for entirely secular purposes is actually saying something very deeply spiritual so we have these categorizations between the sacred music and the secular music but then we also have deep divisions of understanding between let's say quote high art and lower art and so this is one of the things that I want to propose is that we widen our understanding of music. That if what I'm saying is right, that music does have this potentiality for evoking the spiritual, certainly we should acknowledge that that can come from secular music, but not just so-called high forms of music, but lower forms. And as a jazz musician, I would say some classical musicians would snub their nose at that genre, although that's tending to break down these days, as jazz itself becomes almost appreciated as a form of classical music itself. And improvisation is now being taught in conservatories. But my view would be that uh, there are certain elements in popular music that do very much the same thing that elements in classical or high forms of music do as well. So I think it's very unfair to just present broad-based objections to popular music as being non-spiritual or as being 
somehow not as extraordinary as certain of the great uh, compositions are. Yeah, I, I resonate with that because like across every genre of music in my experience, it's not whether it's able to touch something deep within you, it's just the quality of it like you can have wonderful country and western music, wonderful jazz, and not so good country and western, it's what level it touches and I was thinking about the neuroscientist and the waves, I mean there is something really interesting in that, that like what is it that particular notes for example you know if you're watching a film, like depending on the score in the music will dictate more your emotional reaction to that film than what's happening on the screen. It's the music that does it. If you put the same piece of music, say a happy piece, to the same image and then put a sad piece or a scary bit of music, you realise how close it is. And I'm thinking about those wave patterns. Who knows? What's a wave pattern for being sad? What's a wave pattern for being happy? And how that relates to music? You know, so, and why wouldn't that necessarily also relate to something profoundly spiritual? Yeah, exactly. Your reference to soundtracks is very apt. And you also can imagine the power of that. You think about, I don't know, the movie and the corresponding song, Summer of 42. You know, Michel Legrand composed that song. And just those four notes, that can just like stick in your brain all day long. And it evokes all kinds of sentiments that, of course, would be portrayed in the movie and the book and so on. And there's a deep enhancement of whatever visual images you would see there and uh, I totally agree with you that you know the approach we ought to take is as you say towards the quality of each song or each performance take it on its own terms and uh, within that then we can see the the power that's at stake is this a scientific thing or is it a non-scientific thing I mean this was actually a theme that was broached at the first talk today in our conference which is do we want to think about psychology in positivistic terms or do we want to allow that psychology can address questions that point beyond the empirical, beyond the describable into into something else. And for me, that's the beautiful thing about music is that we can certainly address it from a scientific standpoint and we can get a lot of knowledge from that. A pianist can examine the physics of what it is that's going on in the fingers and in the keyboard and so on. Of course, we don't want to reduce it to that. And you can do computer programs that will try to replicate a performance of Chopin, you know, etude, you know, making it, quote, even better than the great pianist. But if you did that, had that kind of a, of a computer program, the result would be a performance that is too perfect. Our minds would interpret that as too perfect and thereby strip it of its soul. It would be seen as just mere mechanism and it would not have anything to do with the human dimension. <laughs> which you would know very well as a jazz pianist because you're improvising on the spot and like I mean talk to me a bit about that I've watched jazz musicians improvise and they're away in another place like this isn't just oh I'll play this note oh I'll do that note I mean this is something that's coming from somewhere beyond the rational am I I right I don't improvise myself what you say is absolutely correct and jazz musicians would describe it variously as flow as a creative flow being in the groove you know we used to talk when we would do jam sessions about while we were really cooking you know (laughs) (laughs) you use you scream for these metaphors that try to... No pun intended. Yeah, what what is it that's going on 
in that creative process and you can never replicate it a second time. I mean, it's there, it has its moment, everybody feels the energy and then the next time you don't try to say, oh, let's let's do that exactly the way we did it before. It won't work. It's going to be a new uh, session each time. Oftentimes, the further away you can get from the script, so to speak, you know, oftentimes when you're doing, say, a standard song, you have a certain set of changes and chord, but great jazz artists just like the great classical composers have excelled because they've been able to transcend whatever the pre-existing perceived limits were. So you can think of Beethoven as breaking down certain conventions and barriers that the genius Mozart had established before him, right? And in the same way, people like Miles Davis, pianist Bill Evans, were building upon certain traditions, but they were also taking it up to... Uh, a new level and where that level comes from is anybody's guess it's the muse which most artists speak about it's the haunted inkwell of James Joyce that and most poets and people I've ever heard interviews who say like that something happens and then it's writing through them almost if they're lucky they get this but it's that push to transcendence is, is interesting whether or not you call it even a god or anything else at least in your terminology I think for today you can see it as something that's deeper than just affectivity it really is spirituality Yeah, to bring it back, for instance, to God, one can profit a great deal from reading, for instance, that J.S. Bach, who would be emulated as probably the greatest musician of all time, himself in his manuscripts would, would write that this was being written for the glory of God. I mean, that's really what motivated him. That's the source of all of his inspiration. Whether contemporary pop musicians, let's say, you know, are giving credit where credit is due, I think is an interesting question. But who knows, you know, maybe by creating a a more open dialogue uh, about these questions, we can find that the spiritual roots of what is taken to be, quote, secular music or just a form of, quote, entertainment can be re-visualized, can be re-appreciated. As I would say, you know, it's all sacred. All music is essentially sacred in this re-way of thinking, new way of thinking. Just say a little bit more to me about that, that all music is essentially sacred for you. Yeah, I mean, I would say all music is necessarily sacred, even in the sense in which music and sound are vibratory, they're vibrations. So something close to my heart, my daughter, as it turns out, is becoming a great uh, musician herself. She's 16 years old. She's studying to become a concert artist. I think about what is she doing, you know? she. It's almost like what you could call, quote, string theory. That is to say, and here's another double entendre for you, when she's playing her violin, she's making these strings do amazing things, right, of great beauty. And even on the level of physics, physicists are telling us now, you know, with string theory that everything is connected, that there is a certain unity which flows from the smallest subatomic particles on the quantum level, through the meso level, on up to the cosmic level. And uh, one thinks in this regard of the music of the spheres, you know, so maybe we're back to the the insights of Pythagoras, who thought that uh, the whole universe was basically a kind of a celestial music, and it reflected the intelligence and harmony that came from God. And what do we need more in this world than universal harmony, something that can bring us all together? One 
thing that I wanted to include is a little discussion of my own personal orientation, both towards music and towards spirituality. And that is when I first started music, I started rather late in life. It was age 14 when I first started taking piano lessons. And of course, I was totally into it by that time and practiced assiduously five hours a day and really got to a, a pretty high level fairly rapidly. But philosophically during this time, I was uh, not at all interested in anything religious. And as I later went to college in my 20s, I was studying philosophy. My joke on myself, by the way, I was too scared to continue to do music as a career because I thought I'll never make any money at it. But then, here's the joke, I went into philosophy and I now ask myself, what was I thinking? You know, that there would be money to be made in philosophy. <laughs> But now, for instance, at this conference, I'm able to reflect back, and it turns me back to earlier orientations. But during my 20s, when I'm studying philosophy, I was a, an avowed atheist. I mean, I used to talk all night in the halls of my dormitories with very devout Christians, for instance. And I thought that, you know, it would be a lot of fun to just, like, refute their different argumentations and proselytations and so on. So religion was like the farthest thing away from anything that I was interested in. And this continued on decade after decade until when I was in my 50s that I started having very profound experiences and they would just sort of come out of nowhere in ad hoc fashion. One of them was while standing singing a hymn in a Unitarian church. And this is a Unitarian church that was, I'd say, by my estimation, more secular than, than sacred and was decidedly anti-Christian, uh, standing there singing a, a hymn entitled Spirit of Life. And I noticed that as I'm singing this song, tears started to flow uh, out of my eyes and I almost began to shake. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's unusual. I wonder what's going on. Another time shortly after this, I was doing yoga. I had a personal a trainer that was teaching me some asanas and uh, at the moment where after one has visualized a color at the center of your heart and sending out love to all sentient beings and then you imagine your spirit rising up above your body and then at the moment where you ask your spirit to return to your body the same thing happened tears began flowing out of my eyes and I began to shake and I asked my yoga instructor is this common and she attributed it to just uh, tensions being released from my mind muscles, but I didn't believe it. I thought, no, there's something else going on here. And so through various paths, meeting different people in Princeton, where I have a home, I actually was embarking down a path of studying Catholicism. And about 10 years ago, I converted to Catholicism, and I'm now a practicing Catholic. And this is, to me, a sign of God's grace is the tears and that when in my moments of doubt I'm wondering you know where are you God the answer is always given to me in this very personal form and I interpret it as the sense of God being present in me and I like to share this story because I have a deep respect for people who identify as atheists or as agnostics. I like to think that, you know, I've been there and done that 
and that there is something beyond that. There's something much richer in life. And I would just note in connection with music that that is also a type of a reaction that many people have to deeply moving musical experiences. If one listens to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings, I mean, these are profound pieces that often bring tears to our eyes. So for me, that's just a demonstration of their, of their spiritual value on a very personal level. And would you say then, because those two experiences, you weren't expecting to cry, and in the Greek Orthodox tradition, tears is a gift, spiritual gift. Would you say then that in your movement from avowed atheist to Catholic, that you were searching or do you feel you were sought out like were you actually saying I want something more I want something deeper or because it's a big move isn't it it is a big move and I would say it's both going on it's a feeling of being sought out that Jesus is there knocking on our door all the time and stopping pausing to open the door and see what's there. And I would say, again, going back to maybe a musical connection or a musical metaphor, I also asked myself which denomination is appropriate for me because my parents were Methodist and then they later went into Presbyterianism. And I thought, well, maybe that's where I should pick up. But it seemed to me that by reading works from let's say, the earliest Christian fathers, I sensed that this is the one faith that roots itself back in the origins. And so I began to discern the clear pathway back through all of the leaders directly to St. Peter. So St. Peter's the first, and there's an unbroken tradition. And to me, that is a parallel kind of a phenomenon in music where you have this evolution, this development where one composer builds upon what has been given from his or her predecessor. That's what I was saying before about how Beethoven builds upon what Mozart has bequeathed. Mozart builds upon what Bach has bequeathed. For Bach, it's his predecessors, Buxtehude and and so on. And this kind of, a, of an evolution, of a spiritual evolution, to me, it's, it's very powerful and it's very authentic. And so I see myself then as tapping into this continuity. Indeed, it's very moving for me, actually, Pat, to be here in Ireland because when I look at my own family heritage, my father's ancestors came directly from Ireland. And so I don't know this for a fact, but perhaps they were Irish Catholics as well, and so perhaps by being here, I'm going back to my ancestral and indeed perhaps spiritual roots uh, as well. And have you had much interest or chance to take a look at Irish music, you know, the traditional music, maybe our Shan Nose or our Ellen Pipes or whatever? I'm very inspired by Irish music, and in fact, uh, when I improvise on the piano, very often I will be trying to evoke the sense that I take from Irish melodies. Uh, it often helps to start with sort of a very simple tune and then build upon that. And I have to say there have been many, many improvisatory sessions 
where I have been able to build upon something like a, a traditional Irish melody. Thanks very much indeed for speaking to us, Kevin Jackson. Thank you.